The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner? But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord my God and my Redeemer. Amen. Well, earlier this year, the NHL had its annual all-star hockey game. Anybody watch it? Anyone? No? Okay. All right. Me neither. Apparently, with the NHL, fans can vote online for who should play in the all-star game. So it really has nothing to do with your performance or what your teammates think of you. It's like when that boat was going to be named through crowdsourcing and they ended up naming it Bodie McBoatface or whatever. Like that sort of thing tends to happen apparently. And this particular year, that exact thing happened almost. A group got together for what appears to be an elaborate joke and they voted overwhelmingly for John Scott to be on the all-star team. John Scott is a big dude. He's what's called in hockey an enforcer. He's the guy who's mostly just there to get in fights and then sit in the penalty box. I mean, by any definition of an all-star, it's not John Scott. John Scott scored a total of two goals in nine seasons. He's, you know, not that great, okay? But he got voted in, and it was so embarrassing that the leaders at the NHL tried to work around the vote because they're just like, This guy really does not deserve to be here. So they had his team trade him to another team, and then that team demoted him to the minor leagues. But of course, the fans went nuts, and so they had to let him play. Not only that, he had gotten so many votes that he didn't just play in the All-Star game. He was the team captain. (laughs) Oh, John Scott. And then you know what happened? He played what is perhaps the best game of his life. He scored two goals in one game, and he was awarded the MVP for his actual performance, because he really showed up. What do you think was going through the minds of the hockey players who were more highly skilled than he was, who didn't make the All-Star team? I wonder. In our gospel text this evening, we're met with a John Scott kind of guy. Zacchaeus was a ruler, 
He was the chief of the tax collectors. He was extremely wealthy, but not in a way that anybody would be envious of. He was nouveau riche. You know the kind of people that just have horrible taste? He was that guy. But it was worse than just having come into money recently and having bad taste. He had acquired his money by cheating his own countrymen. So he's kind of like a really unlikable Richie Rich. His only friend is his butler. He's just sort of stuck at home by himself. And then for the icing on the cake, he had Napoleon's disease. Poor little guy. He was short. So I'm sure people made fun of that too. Pretty much everyone in town hated Zacchaeus. And so when Jesus comes to town, this crowd that we're told about is not an indifferent thing. It's as though they are actively trying to keep our friend Zach from seeing Jesus. They dislike him that much. But Zacchaeus is undeterred. He figures his reputation is already pretty much at zero, so he decides to just run it all the way into the ground by acting like a child and climbing up a tree so that he could get a view of this rabbi, this perhaps Messiah, this friend of sinners and outcasts. And Jesus walks through town. It's almost like a parade. And he comes right up to the sycamore fig tree that Zacchaeus has climbed. And Jesus stops, and he looks up at him, and he says, Come on down. I must be at your house today. Jericho was sometimes referred to as the city of priests, which means that there are hardworking religious folks everywhere in this town. People that had been reading and studying the Old Testament scriptures, their scriptures, wondering when the Messiah would come. Can't you imagine these priests hoping that they would get a chance to see him? They would get a chance to touch his robe? They would get a chance to, I don't know, have dinner with him? And yet none of them are invited. Instead, this dinner invitation goes out to the biggest loser in town. John Scott just got picked to be the captain of the all-star team. Now what's interesting here is that Luke, all the way through his gospel, has been setting up categories throughout his account of Jesus' ministry of people who accept the message of Christ's gospel and people who reject it. And generally speaking, the people that accept the message are the outcast. They're the sinners. They're the poor. They're the marginalized. They're those without power. And generally speaking, those that reject the message are those that are rich, religious, powerful insiders, those that have enough of their own power going on that they don't think they need it. I mean, in fact, in the story just before this one, Jesus meets with a rich young ruler. And he comes to Jesus and he asks him what he must do to inherit eternal life. And after quizzing him a little little bit on his law-keeping, Jesus tells him, sell all of your possessions and give the proceeds to the poor. And we're told the rich young ruler goes away sad. And Jesus tells his disciples, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then we meet Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, the wee little man. Zacchaeus is a camel on a tree, as we'll soon see. But interestingly, he's a mashup of these these categories that reject and accept Christ's message because he's religiously an outcast, but he's also a ruler. He's a sinner, but he's also wealthy. He doesn't fit neatly into any category, and Luke is effectively dismantling the equations that we have built 
to calculate people's status before God. It's almost a lived parable of what comes just before this. When Jesus made his joke about camels and needles, the disciples said, well, who then can be saved? And he responds by saying, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And then we see God work this miraculous turn of events. Zacchaeus' response to being sought after and embraced by Jesus is to give away half of his wealth and to repay those whom he had cheated, which is probably almost everybody, so this is the other half of his wealth is probably going to be gone. He said that he would repay it to the absolute highest penalty that the law would have required, four times back. But the thing of it is, is that he's happy to do it. He's doing it with a smile. His response is the opposite of that of the rich young ruler who went away sad, and it's the opposite of the crowd who's watching this unfold, mouths open, as Jesus had just invited himself over to the town loser's house for dinner. This is the part of the story that I think is so instructive for us. It's that when Zacchaeus meets Jesus, when he hears the invitation of Jesus, he responds with joy. And we're told that they all, so I think Luke is wanting us to, to sort of fill out our interpretation here, the crowds, the Pharisees, maybe even the disciples, they all began to grumble. If you were to chase the themes of joy and grumbling throughout Scripture, you'd find that disbelief often comes wrapped in the packaging of grumbling. In many ways, Adam and Eve's insistence on eating the one thing forbidden them is an acted-out grumble against God. God was no longer enough for them. They wanted something else. We see this when Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness. I mean, they are just constantly filled with grumbling. There's a time, three days after they walked through the Red Sea on dry land and then turned and watched as God drowned the entire armies of the most superpower the earth had ever known. Three days later, they're grumbling. We're thirsty, they say. And so Moses provides them water as a miracle of God. And a short while after that, they grumble against him again. They come to Moses and they say, Ah, if only we died in Egypt. At least there we had food to eat. So Moses, of course, goes and pleads with God, and God sends manna, the bread from heaven, every day, except the Sabbath, for the people to collect and eat. This sweet bread, the bread of angels, as they say. And then the people complain about that. I mean, picking up sweet bread that's literally growing on trees, that's fine, but to eat it every day, I mean kind of paleo. I would love some meat. Really? So the Lord blew a wind of quail to their camp. But over and over and over again, the people grumble and grumble and grumble, even in the face of miraculous provision. I think one of the most hair-raising passages of Scripture is in Psalm 106, as the psalmist is reflecting on this time in Israel's history and writes, a craving seized them in the wilderness, and they put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent leanness into their soul. 
You see, the people had refused to believe that God is good, that he had their good in mind. And so they're like bratty children who are given a white Lexus on their birthday and they throw a fit because they wanted a silver Land Rover. And then when they get what they want, they don't even realize the punishment that has leached into their lives. They no longer want God. Their souls have become collapsed and hollowed out and starved. And they're so busy stuffing their faces with meat that they can't recognize that they have given up the most desirable thing of all, God himself. I could go on and on with story after story of God's people grumbling in the face of his provision. It all adds up to disbelief. Grumbling is, in many ways, self-worship. It's setting yourself up as the most important. And so your desires, your wants, your cravings all have to be met now, preferably. And when things don't go as we'd like them to, what do we do? We grumble. Who among us has had life go exactly as we planned? One of the interesting things about my job is that I get to watch all of you come in week by week. And you're a good-looking crowd. You guys are upwardly mobile. You're finding career success. You have interesting friends. You've led interesting lives. But almost universally, when I sit down and have a one-on-one conversation with each of you, I find that somewhere along the way, there has been fairly serious heartbreak, difficulty, hardship, pain. I mean, this Zacchaeus story just sort of ends, and we like to imagine that he just, like, danced through a field the rest of his life. But, but we know, if you've been following Jesus for a while, that just saying yes to him doesn't lead to this fairy tale life where everything just runs perfectly, and you're at peace all the time. So you have to understand, it's not wrong to complain. The scriptures have plenty of examples of complaint, and this is one reason among literally hundreds of why you should read the Psalms every day, is to hear what it's like when God's people complain rightly. So if you'll allow me to create a a lexical differentiation that doesn't exist in reality, but for our purposes here, okay? The difference between grumbling and complaint. Grumbling is rooted in self-worship and disbelief. Complaint, when done rightly, is rooted in faith, and it always bends toward joy. How? I mean, what makes the difference in a person's life? How does one actually complain to God about the real heartaches that are happening in your life without ending up in doubtful despair, self-worship stuff. What makes the difference? I think the answer is the cross. And I mean that in two ways. The first is that the cross sums up for us this great salvation project that God has been working on our behalf at great cost to himself. We're told that in the Incarnation, Christ emptied himself, took on human flesh. He suffered misunderstanding, rejection, friendlessness, loneliness, 
cold nights with no shelter, betrayal by someone on the inside circle. He was surrounded toward the end of his life with men of power, and none of his friends were there. The friends all fled, and the powerful men all stood passively by, condemning him in the most wrongful execution in history. But that's not even the half of it. I mean, yeah, spineless men and vindictive traitors were working with everything they had toward his demise, but he wasn't forced into it. He chose it. There's this beautiful line in the Orthodox Church's Eucharistic liturgy, in the prayer that they say that it's very similar to ours, but they have one line that's very different. It says this, in the night in which he was given up, or rather gave himself up for the life of the world, he took bread. This was his work, his gift. It's why he came, to hang on a tree and expire for you. He is the real bread of heaven given for you. All of your sin and failure is no longer held against you. So happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity, as our psalm says. The cross makes the difference because it has brought us from death to life, and it has brought us into relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the cross also makes the difference between disbelieving, grumbling, and faithful joy because it is the way in which we are to walk. The cross is the way in which we follow Christ. Zacchaeus here is an acted parable for us of one who is so overcome with his need for Christ that he will not let the crowd stop him. And instead, he does what? He climbs up on a tree. A metaphorical crucifixion, if you will. He dies to himself that he might live to God. Giving away his wealth before meeting Christ may have been a burden too great to bear, but after being given Christ himself, his money becomes meaningless by comparison. Being people of the cross means that we expect hardship. We expect pain and sorrow but we expect joy in the midst of that. Being people of the cross helps us recognize that in not getting the things that we think we want most, that we think we need most, we are instead being given Christ because his power is made perfect in weakness. The sorrow is still real, But if you can enter into it and still have joy in being given Christ, then your soul will have been made whole and fat in the richness of Christ himself. But here's the thing. Being joyful doesn't just happen. It's not a magic pill that you can just take and wake up the next day and all of a sudden you know how to do it. It's something that must be formed in you in the context of sacramental worship where you can feast on Scripture and Eucharist together. I mean, can you imagine eating every meal in your car alone? 
That's no way to live. So don't do that with your spiritual nourishment. You have to come to this place and be fed in the midst of God's people. This place is the sycamore tree. It's the place where you can get out over the crowd and actually see past the clutter of the world and see Christ coming to you and inviting himself into your dwelling for a meal. That's what we're doing here. And so when we come time and time again, we begin to have this joy well up in us, even in the midst of heartache. And of course, we can say then with the psalmist, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart.